This podcast is brought to you by Langley & Benack, a full-service South and Central Texas law firm that delivers the highest quality legal advice coupled with exceptional client service. From our main office in San Antonio, we provide the resources of a national firm while maintaining close ties to the communities in which we practice. To learn more, please visit us at langleybenack.com. That's langleybenack.com or call us at 210-736-6600. Today's episode is part one of a four-part series on bankruptcy law. This series is hosted by Clinton Butler. The information, opinions, and recommendations presented in the Langley and Benack podcast are for information purposes only and should not be considered legal or professional advice for any particular situation. The presentation of this informational content does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you would like to meet with one of our attorneys, please contact us through our website at www.langleybenack.com or call us at 210-736-6600. Hello, I'm Clinton Butler, and this is a four-part series on bankruptcy law in Texas. As some of you might remember, I was the host of the Oil & Gas podcast that recently aired on Langley & Benack's podcast system. I'm also a litigator and oil and gas attorney here in San Antonio, Texas. I also enjoy learning about new areas of law, and I've been told by my bosses that I enjoy hosting podcasts as well. So with that, I have ventured out of my little sphere of oil and gas and oil and gas litigation and into the unknown realm for me of bankruptcy. And this will be the first of four episodes of a four-part series on the bankruptcy law in Texas. Today's episode will be our first introduction into what's called personal or consumer bankruptcy. To help us understand more about the process before, during, and after filing bankruptcy, I've brought in a Langley Benack attorney with over 35 years of experience in this field. Today I'm joined by William R. Davis, or as he's known by his friends and colleagues around the office, Dickie. Dickie, good morning, and please tell us a little bit about yourself. Good morning, Clinton. Yeah, I've uh, been fortunate, and I've been at Langley Benack for the last 23 years, dealing in business and consumer bankruptcy. I find consumer bankruptcy to be particularly rewarding because you're helping people that really need help and um, it, it can be very rewarding as I stated. Where did you start off with or what, what law school did you go to and then you know, give us a little bit of background you know, before you came to Langley. Sure. I went to uh, law school at, uh, at St. Mary's University and prior to that I attended University of Texas and got a BBA in accounting. And when I came out of law school, I worked for Arthur Anderson for about a year and a half in their tax department. And then I hooked up with an individual named Garvin Stryker, and we just had a, a bankruptcy boutique for about 15 years. And then I've been at Langland Benack for the last 23 years dealing strictly in bankruptcy. So, you know, when people ask me, how did you become a litigator? How did you get into oil and gas? The answer is pretty simple. It's, it's what my dad did and what I you know, saw at the house you know, day in, day out. And so it just kind of seemed like there was, there was only one of two professions in my life is either going to be that or English teacher. And I couldn't stand being around seventh graders. So you know, litigation seemed as the, 
the natural course for me. How does somebody become a bankruptcy lawyer? And more specifically, how did you become a bankruptcy lawyer? Well, uh, my dad, too, was an attorney. So I grew up with a lawyer in the house, and I always looked up to my dad. When I was at law school at St. Mary's, there was a professor I had, had named Glenn Ayers, and he became one of my close friends. And um, when I was working, after I'd gotten out of law school and was working at Arthur Anderson, Glenn called me one day and said, Davis, I've got a deal for you. You need to be a bankruptcy lawyer. You need to call a guy named Garvin Stryker. I called Garvin and, and we got together and I've worked with him for about 15 years. After, during that time, Glenn Ayers actually went and became the chief bankruptcy judge of the, our, our division here in, in San Antonio. So not only did I get to learn about bankruptcy, I got to uh, work with Glenn as the judge here. So it was quite an experience. Doesn't hurt to have a good relationship with the judge. Never hurts. <laughs> not gonna, it's not gonna help you, but you at least know what to expect better. That's right. So you know, obviously you've been doing bankruptcy for about 35 years, right? That's correct. There's been something about this type of law that's kept you in this game. You know, I mean, I, I started off my career as a prosecutor uh, great first career, great way to you know start off as a baby lawyer, but it was just one of those things that I could only do for so long. You've been in bankruptcy for 35 years. What's kept you coming back into the office doing bankruptcy day in, day out? Well, and, and I, I do consumer and I do business bankruptcy, but the neat thing about bankruptcy is every day is a different day. One day it may be a lease dispute, One the next day it may be an IRS problem. The next day, uh, and it just there's so many different things that you you can deal with. You're just not sitting there and checking the boxes and doing the same thing day in day out. So it has a nice variety to it. Okay, so you're able to experience new new challenges, new obstacles, new fact scenarios just on a ba daily basis, pretty much. Absolutely. Well, that that certainly does help. So I want to start off. Um, and I'll be frank with you and the audience, one of the areas of law that I know the least about would be bankruptcy. And so I'm gonna be learning right along with our, with our listening audience as to you know, what bankruptcy entails. So you know, take me at the 30,000 foot view here of bankruptcy. From my limited understanding, there are three different chapters of bankruptcy, which really kind of determine what your route and what your future is as a participant in bankruptcy. Is that a correct statement? Yeah, in a consumer, in a consumer world, yeah, set chapter seven, chapter 11, and chapter 13 are all available. There's also chapter 12, that's for a family farmer. I don't, that's not really a consumer type issue, but um, the, the seven, 11, and 13 are the ones that really are applicable. So let's break each one of these chapters down a little bit and take me through an example of when a consumer or an individual would find themselves in each one of these chapters, what it looks like to go through this chapter, what, what is the end result normally in this chapter, and then we can kind of springboard off of that. Sure. Let's, we'll start with Chapter 7. Chapter 7 the, is where you have an individual or a, a couple and, it, you know, could be a business. Um, comes in, a lot of times it results from a failed business. Sometimes it's an individual and they've got a lot of credit card debt. Uh, they could be behind on their more, I mean, a lot of, cre a lot of credit card debt. Um, and they just want to 
stop and start over, get a fresh start. So the purpose of a chapter seven is to get a discharge of your debt and move forward and, and put all the old behind you and start new. Now, you know, to some of our listening audience, you know, that, that sounds kind of like a magic wand that, you know, we're going to just, just get rid of all this debt um, and just kind of start fresh. But I'm sure that there are more complications than just, you know, Dickie comes in, does some hocus pocus in front of the judge, and suddenly you're, you're a zero balance. That's right. You're, you're right. And for the, for the average consumer who, you know, has $75,000 of credit card debt, probably not. But there can be complications of, of more, uh, a, a larger debt load that includes the Internal Revenue Service. Uh, generally, the IRS debt is non-dischargeable. However, if the if the um, IRS liability is more than three years old, tax returns been filed for two years, and the tax has been assessed for 240 days, uh, IRS debt can be dischargeable. Now, they may have a lien, and you, if you have assets that have value, it may be something you have to deal with. But uh, you can discharge IRS debts in a lot of situations. Uh, a lot of times you get into situations where there's child support and alimony type issues and those can be complicated. Uh, generally they're not going to be dischargeable and you're going to have to pay those obligations. Uh, and you can have a situation where there's certain debts that are non-dischargeable. If you uh, applied for a loan and you gave an inaccurate financial statement that listed assets that you didn't have in the bank or the lender relied on it, you may have a non-dischargeability issue. In other words, you can't, you can't commit like fraud in the manner in which you receive the money and then try to discharge the debt related to that credit. Is that Generally correct? speaking, that's correct. Now, uh, in the last 20 years, I probably haven't had, well, a few dischargeability issues, but for, for fraud or those type issues, it just generally doesn't happen. The average consumer doesn't do that, and the lender may not care. So the lender would have to, to file an adversary to have the debt to be held non-dischargeable. And if you're filing bankruptcy and you don't have anything, a lot of times they won't even do anything. And so in this scenario, a Chapter 7, in which I'm just trying to get my my books in order, you know, I just, I'm trying to get my financial life, you know, tied back together. It's gotten out of control. You know, in this sort of circumstance, you know, is, I, I guess when I'm, when I'm thinking of bankrupt, I'm thinking of my debt or my liability is greater than any assets that I own. Is that, is that the case in a chapter seven? You know, are you, are you underwater? Or could I have assets that would, you know, if completely liquidated, satisfy these debts, I just don't want to liquidate my life. You know, is chapter seven available for those types of people? Well, sure. I mean, Texas is probably, if not the most liberal, one of the most liberal states as far as exemptions. I think that's the only time Texas has ever been called one of the most liberal states, but go for it. That's right. That's right. I thought you might say that. <laughs> um, so, I mean, your homestead, which now consists of, uh, if it's a uh, urban, up to 10 acres, if it's rural, up to 100 acres per person, um, is, is going to be exempt. Now, you, obviously, any debt you have against it, you're going to have to keep paying. Uh, personal property, you can have up to $100,000 per couple. 
including vehicles, household goods, jewelry. Jewelry's capped at, I think, $10,000 a person, which uh, almost never is an issue. And uh, you also get retirement accounts. You can have multiple retirement accounts. They're not subject to the $100,000, as well as cash value and life insurance. So it's, it's pretty liberal. Now, one thing in a Chapter 7, most the average consumer that's making $50,000 a year, a husband and wife with two kids, they're not going to have any problem. But there is a means test. And you, if your income is above a certain level, you may not be eligible for Chapter 7, and you may have to consider Chapter 13. For uh, an a individual, say, that was involved in a corporation and had a large amount of debt that he guaranteed of the business, um, if, you, if the majority of your debt is business-related, the means test is not applicable. So even if you would not qualify otherwise, if your debt is above the, um, uh, more, more than 50% relates to the business, you're not going to have to comply with the means test. So no matter what my income is or what assets I may own, if, you know, if a majority of my debt is because, you know, I own a car dealership and I guaranteed, you know, the floor plan on a car dealership, and the car dealership went bust, and I'm sitting there with a you know bank telling me I owe them a million bucks for this collateral and credit that they've given me. Uh, you know, despite whatever assets and income I have, in that instance, Chapter Seven may still be available to me. Is Absolutely. Right? Okay. Yeah. Okay. So let's let's just walk the audience through, you know, a real basic procedure of you know from from nose to tail. How uh, how this thing would work? So I, I you know I called Dickie and I make an appointment to come see you in the office and I say look, you know things have just got a little out of hand. I've got you know a hundred thousand dollars in credit card debt. I got the credit card company banging on my door. I'm not going to be able to make this payment. Uh, you know is what is it that you tell that person and where do you take that person through the journey? You know talk to me about the path of how. Chapter 7 works typically? Sure. If I get a call like that, I'm going to set a meeting up and, and, and visit with those people and talk about, you know, the options, Chapter 7 being one of them. And uh, there's certain information I've got to gather from them, and there's forms I have them fill out. I'd ask them to bring me their latest tax return and their latest pay stubs to determine, you know, if they're eligible for Chapter 7. And if so, We'd get them to fill the forms out, and then we'd draft the documents and sit down with them and go over everything. You've got to make sure that you qualify for Chapter 7, and you know, 90% of the time, that's, that's, it's going to happen. You're going to be fine. And once you've reviewed the documents and answered any questions they have, and you can proceed and file the Chapter 7. When you file the case, Everything's done electronically now, so once you file it, there's going to be a notice that's issued to all the creditors, and so they'll stop calling you. If for some reason a creditor would, were to continue to call the individual, I'd ask them to let me know, and we'd send them a letter, but it's rarely an issue because it's all done by Social Security numbers now, and creditors are pretty good about gathering that the bankruptcy's been filed. So what do you file initially with the bankruptcy court in a Chapter 7 uh, scenario? You file a petition that includes a list of all their assets, all their liabilities, and answers some financial questions about 
payments they've made and I mean there's little things you have to be careful about if they if the individual that's come to you has paid back money to a family member which is called an insider in a bankruptcy in the last year you've got to disclose that and the trustee could go and try and get that you know claw back that money that was made uh, so you if it's close to a year you know since the payment was made you may wait a couple months if it's an individual, a family member, and they don't have a lot of money or assets, it's unlikely the trustee's gonna go after them, and so that may not be an issue, but. So that first meeting is critically important that anyone coming in talking about chapter seven, you know, come in and completely lay out their financial picture to you because there could be timing issues with regards to when you want to file this petition that, you know, may determine whether or not a bankruptcy trustee could go and try to claw back some money uh, or not be able to. Is that right? That's right. Okay. So, you know, I, we always tell our clients, look, tell me everything because I can deal with it better if you tell me. But, you know, there are real world implications to that other than just establishing that level of communication and trust. Right. Full disclosure is the key. That's right. And so you mentioned... Uh, to those of us who don't practice bankruptcy, you mentioned a, a party who's kind of this mythical creature in bankruptcy law, uh, the trustee. Right. You know, tell us who the bankruptcy trustee is, what their purpose is, what they do. In a Chapter 7 trustee case, there is a trustee appointed in every, every bankruptcy case. Who is this trustee? How do they get appointed? You know, how do they come into this court? Well, obviously different districts are different. In San Antonio, we have four trustees. There's a panel of four chapter seven trustees, and one of them is automatically appointed to every case that's filed. So kind of like a judge, you know, or in that sort of scenario, when you get file a petition in court, you're appointed a judge, you know, out of the judges in the district court level. There's a certain body or certain select group of trustees who get appointed per case, is right. that right? Okay. The trustee's job is to look and make sure all the paperwork's been filled out and filed and then to review the paperwork to see if there may be any non-exempt assets or transfers or anything like that. And the trustee will ask the debtor or the debtor's questions at their creditor's meeting, which happens 30 days after the case is filed, uh, about that. The creditors are simply the people that you owe money to, right? The, uh, uh, the creditors are who we owe money, but right. if I said I meant debtors, the, so the debtors go to the 341 meeting. Okay. Creditors have the right to appear, but they almost never do. Okay. So it's generally gonna be me, the debtors, and the trustee. And the trustee's looking to see if he can generate any assets that he can liquidate to pay creditors with. Okay. And if he can't, he's gonna close it as a no asset case and, and you know, you're basically done. If there are assets, it could drag on. So, okay, so if there aren't any assets and you say it's a no asset case and you're done, does that mean that the debt's just gone? That once you get your discharge, which happens about 90 days after you file the case, when you get your discharge, everything that you listed is discharged. Okay. Sometimes people come in afterwards and go, oh, I forgot to list this creditor and um, can we add them? And it's easy enough to do unless there's some reason that you intentionally left them off, mm -hmm. but you can give a, a creditor notice after the fact, and I've never really had that be a problem. So, you know, after, this sounds like a fairly quick procedure. You know, yeah. the way you describe it, you know, I, that was a much faster, you know, life lifespan of that type of case than what I was expecting hearing. So you're saying that, you know, within 
90 days of filing your petition that it's possible that, you know, depending on what sort of assets that you have, this debt, the debts that you have could be discharged under a Chapter 7 and you could be, you know, technically uh, debt free at that point. Is that That's right? right. You'd be debt free and the, the purpose is to give you a fresh start mm -hmm. to start over. Now, there's no such thing as a free lunch. So, you know, there is a cost, uh, maybe not a monetary one, but there is certainly a cost that comes along with being, with having your debts discharged under Chapter 7. You know, and we want to make sure that the audience, you know, again, this isn't just a magic wand. It, you, you pay a pound of flesh for this. Can you talk about uh, the monetary and then the non-monetary cost that are associated with going forward with the Chapter 7? So when you file a bankruptcy, it's going to be reported on your credit, mm -hmm. and that's going to show up for 10 years, and that certainly has some implication. But generally, when somebody comes to you and they need to file a Chapter 7, their credit's already so shot that it really isn't hurting them. Um, you know, if they're both working, if they have a house and they have a car and they are current on those and they keep making their payments, they can reestablish their credit. Once you file bankruptcy and you get a discharge, you can't refile for eight years. So if it's you're- It's a once every eight year tool, is that right? Hopefully not, yeah. but yes. But some <laughs> At the people, most. At I, the I have most. seen some people, and it's like every 10 years they file bankruptcy. It's just but, they got it marked on their calendar that it's chapter seven day. That's right. Okay, yeah. That's right. So you know, when you said that, you know, at, at the point where somebody's filing chapter seven, you know, your credit isn't your concern. You know, if, if the house is on fire, you don't care if the sink doesn't give full pressure on the on the water. You right. know, it's it's one of those deals where, look, we're we're in an emergency break glass sort of moment. You know, if we go down from a six fifty to a five fifty, you know, so be it. Yeah. You can you can reestablish your credit. One, the debt's gone. Two, you make your payments going forward. You can reestablish your credit. And three, the most important thing I think for a lender is is your income. And if you've got income and ability to repay, you can get a loan. You you may be paying a higher interest rate. Yeah, but you can. I guess the way I'd phrase it is, of all three of the bankruptcies, Chapter Seven is the happiest of them all. You know, sure, that, that's the one where you know, you come out the best on the other side of it. Would you agree with that? That's probably right. I mean, and you know, these people are under a tremendous amount of stress, credit card companies are suing you, you don't know any better, you, you're, you're, you're nervous, you're worried, and it allows you to put all that behind you. It stops any lawsuits, stops any collection activity, and you know, allows you to move towards a discharge. You know, in speaking with your clients after that discharge letter comes, you know, are you able to kind of physically see kind of the wave of relief, you know, wash over them that, yes, I'm going to take a hit on that credit, but thank God I'm not getting those phone calls anymore. And, you know, thank God I don't have a $100,000 anvil just hanging over my head and stuff right. like that. Right. I think you see it almost when the case is filed, not even when the discharge is <laughs> entered. But they, it's a, they have the, the, the tongue, there's light at the end of the tunnel, right. so to speak. Yeah, the phone calls stop. Right. You know, the letters stop. And right. so, yeah. So, Let's move from, I guess, what we were calling our happy place to Chapter 7 and move into some darker areas. Um, chapter 11, you know, that, that's the one that we kind of all hear about. Take us through Chapter 11. Chapter 11 is, you know, really more for a business, but an individual can file Chapter 11, and I do a lot of them for individuals. Uh, a lot of people that have IRS problems 
a lot of times the debt's not dischargeable. It's, it's newer or they didn't file their return timely uh, or there's a lien out there and they have assets with value. And so in a chapter 11- Tell us, I'm gonna break you up here because you know, a lot of the audience is, is lay people. Tell us what a lien is. A lien is where, well, there's, there's different things. You know, if you have a, a mortgage on your house, mm -hmm. uh, they, the, the lender will have a lien on your house. There's a deed of trust and that gives it grants them a lien. And if you default on your note, if you don't pay your loan, you know, the bank has the right to institute foreclosure proceedings and take your house, right? That's the general rule, yes. Right, because they've got a lien on it, yeah. right? Okay, so those are just some basics and we can jump off from there. Okay, so, you know, we're going through why Chapter 11 may apply. Excuse the interruption. No, that's okay. Um, so Chapter 11 and, you know, the IRS, uh, they can file a notice of federal tax lien. And uh, you're supposed to get a copy, but you can check, check the real property records and it'll tell you if they filed a lien. So that determines whether or not you need to do a Chapter 11 if you owe a large IRS debt. You can also deal with it in the Chapter 13, but uh, the advantage of a uh, Chapter 11 may be that a lot of times some of the IRS debt may be unsecured and you can discharge it and some of it may be non-dischargeable and you have to pay it. Uh, in a 13, you may end up, well, you have to pay a trustee a 10% commission, but it, it works well in a chapter 11. It just depends. It's really for a, um, maybe someone that had a business that's gone bad and, and they've been held responsible for 941 liability as a responsible party for the IRS. What's a 941 liability? 941 is the, um, if you have a business and you have employees, you've got to file quarterly tax returns showing what money you took out. Basically, you had an employee, you took out taxes, and you're supposed to pay that to the IRS. Well, a lot of times when a business is in trouble, they take the taxes out, but they don't pay it to the IRS. It's one of those what's called a very expensive loan. Mm -hmm. And so the IRS can go against the individual that runs the company and assess them liability as a responsible party. And they're pretty good at that. So, <laughs> uh, that, and that's a debt that's non-dischargeable versus a 1040 liability, which can be dischargeable if it's more than three years old and you file the return timely and the IRS assets the liability. So. Um, it's generally for someone with more debt. And for example, in a chapter 13, I'll keep jumping back and forth, but there's a max, there's a maximum of, of I don't know if it's a million and a million, million and a half of secured debt and like 375 of unsecured debt. So some people will exceed that limit and not be eligible for 13 and it may force them to file a chapter 11. So, you know, Give us what is the most common, you know, what's the prototypical person you're looking at who comes in, you, comes into your office and say, or you tell them it looks like it's chapter chapter eleven for you. You know, what is it? The small business owner who's maybe guaranteed too much of the business debt, or is it is it somebody who's just gone way over their head with personal spending? You know, what what is that common fact scenario that says this is probably gonna be chapter 11. It, it could be that, it could be a sole proprietorship and they're behind on, on their bills and certain things and either they don't qualify for a chapter 13 
or there's some things about a chapter 11 that can be more attractive. In a chapter 11, you don't have a chapter 13 trustee, so you're not paying somebody 10% on everything that you're dispersing to creditors. Two, in depending on income and means testing, uh, in a 13, the trustee's looking at your budget every penny, and you may say, I spend $400 a month for this, and they say, no, the national average is 300, and that's all we're gonna allow, and so, all of a sudden you have, instead of $500 a month to pay, you have $1,500 a month to pay. And that means in a 13, you're going to be paying for five years and you're going to pay maybe all your creditors. In a chapter 11, you may actually be able to pay the unsecureds a whole lot less money. So it just it's it, there's some trade-off. It just depends. Are, is, the, is, the, uh, is the IRS... Uh, a party that is typically involved when Chapter 11 comes into play? They will be involved. They'll follow proof of claim, and they've got people up in Austin, the special procedures, which overlooks bankruptcy, and they will monitor the case. And they'll monitor it in Chapter 13, too. Mm-hmm. Both of them pretty well have the same people doing the same, you know, similar things. Are they the most likely creditor uh, in a Chapter 11? I mean, when you're dealing with, like, personal bankruptcy in Chapter 11, is it usually you going up against the IRS? That's certainly one of the main areas that I see, people that, that owe a bunch. Yeah. Uh, and um, in a Chapter 11, so if somebody was saying, well, I really don't want to file bankruptcy, I'm going to just take care of the IRS myself outside of bankruptcy. Well, outside of bankruptcy, you're paying them 4 or 5% interest plus 12% penalty. Mm-hmm. In, a, in a Chapter 11, you're going to pay them four or five percent interest on their priority claim and on their secured claim, but their unsecured claim, there's no penalty or interest. But the biggest part, you're not paying 12% penalty on a secured or priority claim. So likely in a scenario where you've got the IRS, you're gonna pay off the IRS years ahead of when you would have if you were having to pay 17% penalty and interest. Okay. so. You know, like we did with Chapter 7, let's let's walk the audience through what a typical procedure in a Chapter 11 looks like. I come to you, um, you know, same deal. I've, I've guaranteed so much money on this car dealership that I own. Car dealership went bust. Um, bank's coming after me. IRS is coming after me. Um, my assets do not exceed my liabilities. My liabilities are way up there. And whatever my assets are, they ain't that. And so, you know, come in, I'll bring this fact scenario to you. And you say, you know, looks like we're going into Chapter 11. You know, tell me as the client, what does my life look like for the next, you know, six months, year, years, you know? Yeah, Chapter 11, generally, I mean, you're, for like the IRS, you could pay them over five years. Okay. Uh, you could pay shorter if you could. but So if you've got someone that comes in, they've got a lot of unsecured debt, uh, and they have the IRS, and let's say some of the IRS debt is penalty, and maybe some of it is old taxes, and there's not a lien, and you can discharge them, then you, you actually may say, I think what we need to do is file a Chapter 7 and get rid of as much debt as we can, and then we could always come back and do a Chapter 11 or a Chapter 13 and pay the balance. So you can you can start off in one chapter and move over to another one after you've gotten, you know, like we said in Chapter 7, that's kind of a that's a happy bankruptcy. If you're going to do a bankruptcy, that's that's the one I think you'd most likely want is a 
as a consumer, right? Absolutely. And so you, we discharge as much as we can under seven, and then you can morph that into an 11 later on if you need to? Yeah, you've gotten your discharge on all the unsecured debt, but then you've got to deal with the non-dischargeable, the IRS debt, and you can deal with it and pay it out over five years, which in normal times, you probably can't get an installment agreement for five years. Right now, you probably can. Uh, Why is that? Because with COVID and, and the IRS and everybody's, a lot of people, the IRS, they're not, you know, they're working from home and mm -hmm. some of them are prepared, some of them aren't. But in the revenue officers that are out in the field collecting, they're all working out of their, their house or their car. And, and so nobody's going to the office. So right now terms are a lot more lenient than they have been. And that so may be for another while. It, it might be a good time right now if bankruptcy is a potential option. This might be a good time to do bankruptcy. Right. Right, it could be, and 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 you know a non uh, bankruptcy item. If 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 really IRS is all your problem, and you don't have a lot of assets and your income isn't very high, a lot of times you can make an offer and compromise, and not file bankruptcy. And by an offer and compromise, you value your assets, and there's some basis of your income over a period of 24 months, and you make a payment plan to the IRS that may be even better than a than a bankruptcy. So I um. We've, we've either morphed from a seven to an 11 or we just jump in the pool at 11. You know, what does an 11 procedure look like? You know, how, what's the length of time that someone could expect? What sort of documents, you know, need to be filed by you? What sort of assets and, or what sort of information do you want up front in that initial meeting uh, in order to, you know, bring forth a bankruptcy chapter 11 petition. It's, it's pretty much, you know, whether you're doing looking at a 7, 11, or a 13, you're going to request the same information. Okay. And it'll help you, to, you know, evaluate which is the best chapter for you. Um, so, they're, they're, you know, the, the real advantage in 11 for an individual is if you've got IRS debt and you have a substantial amount, you can get more favorable repayment terms. And if you have a lot of unsecured debt, you can propose a plan that says, I'm going to, you know, based upon a liquidation analysis, if I file Chapter 7, you'd get nothing. I'm going to pay you 10 cents on the dollar, and you should be happy because that's more than you would get in a 7, and you're not paying anywhere near all the liability. If you file the 13, you get in the situation where if you have a lot of unsecured debt and your income, you have a pretty good income, the trustee is going to always be trying to knock your expenses down and have you pay more in and pay more over the term towards your unsecured creditors. Okay. So what, you know, you say we file a Chapter 7 petition at the beginning of a Chapter 7. I'm assuming we file a Chapter 11 petition at the beginning of a Chapter 11. Is yes. that right? Mm -hmm. And then what does the procedure look like after we filed? You know, do we get that same letter to the creditors of stop calling us? Yes. Do we get that same, you know, you know, stay on any anybody trying to get money from us once we file Chapter 11 just like we did with 7? In all three cases, or all three chapters, 7, 11, or 13, Clerk's office is going to issue a notice, but the big creditors, they get notice from Social Security numbers, and they've got it before they get the notice. I so it gets cleaned up. That gets stopped very quickly. So in in all three of the chapters, that immediate relief of the calls are going to stop, the letters are going to stop, 
the harassment's going to stop. That that happens in all three cases. Right. Okay. So you file the petition, the the halt on creditor uh, coming after you occurs. What happens after that? Well, in, in 11, you have a creditor's meeting 30 days after you file the case. All, all Creditors chapters. or debtors? Uh, a, well, they call it a creditor's meeting. The debtors and I Could, attend, oh. but it's to give the creditors notice, and the creditors can come in and ask questions if they, if they have any questions. Okay. And so what is that debtor's meeting or creditor's meeting? Uh, that's with a trustee, right? Right. And is that going to be kind of similar to what that Chapter 7 creditors meeting was about relatively similar you don't have a one of the stat the panel chapter 7 trustees in the chapter 11 you have the um, chapter 11 trust the US trustee rather uh, and they have a representative that will appear and ask those types of questions and who's the US trustee is there a particular guy or woman who you know is the U.S. trustee, or do they choose from a panel, or how does that person? There's an overall U.S. trustee. Kevin Epstein's a trustee here, and then there's two trustees underneath him. One that handles each judge's docket, and so one of those two would, uh, based upon who the judge is, would determine who the trustee is. It would oversee the case. Okay. So the trustee's overseeing your case, but it's more from a compliance issue than a, in a, like at a Chapter 13 where the trustee is trying to figure out how they can get more money for creditors, or a Chapter 7 where the trustee is trying to see if there are any non-exempt assets. Okay, so we have that meeting, um, and that's basically a, an assets versus liabilities meeting right there? Well, just to see that, you, again, that you've filled out the paperwork and kind of where you're going in the case. And if you're going to file a Chapter 11, you have... 120 days to file a plan, but generally I would file a plan immediately. You know what you're going to do. You file your plan and you try and get it confirmed quickly because it's less expensive. And so what is a bankruptcy chapter 11 plan? Plan is it's just a, a, a contract really of how you're going to repay people. Okay. What the terms are, what the interest is, how long. And who who's involved in making and agreeing to this plan? Just the, the debtor and, 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 and myself. Okay, so you basically uh, draft out, look, we owe you know this person X, we owe this person Y, we owe this person Z. We propose to pay you know 30 cents on the dollar to person X at this interest. We propose to pay 40 cents on the dollar to person Y at this interest. We propose to pay you know 20 cents on the dollar to person Z at this interest over these amounts of time, right. right? And then the bankruptcy trustee either says yes, no, or makes a modification? No, the trustee doesn't really do it. The trustee could object if you put stuff in the plan that he doesn't think is appropriate, but the creditors get to vote on their repayment terms, okay. and they can vote for or against. And if somebody were to vote against, you can try and negotiate with them and resolve that and to make a consensual plan. And so that that's something that you would do would be that, you know, let's say that person X and Y say, you know, look, don't like it, but probably the best we're gonna get. But person Z is like, no, you know, I'm not taking 20 cents on the dollar. Right. I object. Uh, at that point, you get with counsel for person Z and you, you try to work out of, you know, can we do 25 or something like that. Is that right? Right, you can negotiate. Yeah. Okay, and so let's say that Negotiations fail. You're look. It's going to be twenty if it's going to be anything, and they're saying no, fifty or nothing. You know, you've you've reached an impasse. What happens at that point? Well, the, then the judge ultimately decides. But there's certain things that you have to make sure you comply with. 
generally in a generally in a chapter 11 you're supposed to pay creditors in full okay and if you don't there's a thing called the absolute priority rule and that means you can't do it without paying them in full or paying them at least what they would get in liquidation but very rarely will you run into that problem that you generally can resolve that so are you saying generally you can work out a deal or get a plan approved that's you know certain cents on the dollar or are you saying that you can generally work out just the payment plan on 100 cents on the dollar no yeah i mean you you could i mean worst case you could do is pay, i'll pay you 100 cents on the dollar but that rarely happens what right. you find is most creditors in a chapter 11 don't even vote they don't a lot of people they just don't pay very close attention to it. credit card companies and things like that you may have a creditor that's out to get you and there could be somebody but it's rare okay and they do have, and I think someone else is going to talk about it, subchapter 5, chapter 11's now, and that you don't have to have a creditor uh, accept a plan. You could cram it down on them. You don't have the absolute priority rule. So there are, there are different things that you can, you can look into. And so are you just saying that a lot of times, you know, just, just through the creditor not paying attention, you can, you know, get a plan approved that's pennies on the dollar for that creditor? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, either we, and then you say that if there is an objection and you can't reach an agreement with that creditor, uh, you then present, you know, that creditor's case to the court and the bankruptcy court decides that, you know, based on the, uh, the absolute, uh, I'm sorry. Absolute priority rule absolute or whatever it may rule. be. They could be other basis for objections. They'll, they'll then decide, you know, between the two of you, here's what, Will they just make an arbitrary ruling as here's what the plan is going to be as to this creditor? He's not going to tell you what you have to pay him. He's going to tell you, are you in compliance with the law? Do you meet the, the, the standards that you have to meet? And if you don't, he would deny it. If you do, he, could, he would confirm it. But he's not going to you know, come between trying to you know, force some kind of a settlement that nobody likes. And the bankruptcy court won't, you know, put in their own judgment as to what they believe the plan should be for that creditor, right. is that correct? Not they just either that. approve, disapprove, and if it's disapproved, go back to the drawing board. Right. Okay. All right, so we got our plan approved, um, or at least it's it's going forward, and what does it look like after that plan gets approved? Once it's approved, then your obligation to make the, you know, I generally send the client a, a memo saying, you know, here's what your payments are, when they start, where you make them so they have the information and at that point they just have to comply and make the payments on a monthly basis if they don't the plan has default language and the creditor could send a notice and you've got 30 days generally to cure it okay and so when does discharge happen in a chapter 11 for an individual a discharge is not granted till the plans has been completed so you have to actually file a motion for entry of a discharge upon completing the plan okay so you know, the, uh, the discharge doesn't, you know, it's not going to be a quick deal like it was in a Chapter 7. You know, if you've got a plan that has payment terms that stretch out for 5, 10 years, then it's going to be 5, 10 years before you get yourself out of bankruptcy. That's right. right? Okay. That's right. And so, you know, the, again, one of the other benefits to Chapter 7 is it just, you know, it, it happens quick. You're, right. you're in, you're out, and you're, you're done. Chapter, chapter 11 you're going to have to, you know, have this with you until you, you complete and satisfy that plan. Right. Okay. Um, and so we've talked about it because you've compared and contrasted some. Let's move now to Chapter 13. 
you know, fill in the holes on chapter 13 from where we've already discussed from it. Yeah, I mean, in chapter 13, if you've got a problem, a consumer comes in, they've got a problem, is generally a great place for them. So if you uh, have a couple that comes in and they're behind on their mortgage and it's posted for foreclosure, chapter 13 is where you're going to want to be because you can file a bankruptcy, cure whatever their arrears are, over a period of time through the plan. Uh, you know, if you're in a chapter seven and you're behind on your mortgage, you don't have that option. Now, you, if you go through and get your discharge, you might be able to negotiate something with, with your lender or you might be able to get current with them because now you don't have anybody else you have to pay. But for the average person that's behind on their mortgage, behind on their car, and the, you know, the banks, they've got the repo guy looking for the car, and they just have, you know, they owe cons on furniture and they want to keep the furniture. Uh, there's ways you can deal with all those types of secured creditors. They've got a lien, you know, on your house, your car, your furniture. Some of those people might have a small amount of IRS debt that needs to be taken care of. So it's, it's kind of a specific group, but it's, if you have those problems, Chapter 13 is a great place. It's, again, the same type of thing. as It's similar to an 11. You have a plan you propose, but there's a form plan that the trustee in your division, they're looking at a national plan, but I don't think anybody's gone to it. Uh, there's a plan that says, here's what I'm gonna, here are my creditors, here's how I'm gonna pay them. And you know they can run, it could be three years, it could be five years, however long you need to pay off the people that you've got. Okay, so you know, kind of walk me through, you know, you touched on it, but walk us through why am I choosing, you know, or when is 13 really available to me versus, you know, I've got to go to 11? Well, so 13, it's really for a, the smaller, you're going to have smaller individuals that don't have, I mean, 11 really to me is, is IRS is the, is the big problem mm -hmm. that you've got. Or if you're a small business and you've got a number of creditors that you owe money and you want to restructure their debt. Uh, in 11, it's a, it's a guy that they're behind on their house. They want to save the house, the car, you know, furniture, things like that. And, and, but you're talking generally with people with smaller incomes and smaller net disposable incomes to repay these people over time. And that's for the 13. The 13. Right. And so, you know, 13 is much less of a house on fire circumstance than an 11. Is that right? Well... It, it, it's a relative thing. If, if it's your house, it's about to be foreclosed. It's pretty much, it's on, you know, on fire, right. but it's, it's different levels, you know, okay. different levels, but yeah. Okay. So, you know, walk us through, you know, the, the pros of a 13 against an 11, and then we'll go through what are the cons of a 13 versus an 11. Well, the pros on the 13 obviously are you, you could save your house, you can save your car, those types of things. So 11 is just complete liquidation. Is that right? No, seven is complete liquidation. Okay, seven is complete. Eleven is, is a reorganization, okay. really more on a larger scale, larger, more debt. Okay, okay. So, you know, 13, you, you're saving the house, you're, you're saving the assets. You know, what else does 13 get me as opposed to 11? Well, you get, okay, so let's say you have $25,000, $30,000 of unsecured debt, and you have, you know, you're behind on your house, you're behind on your car, you pay all the debts, you've got to pay the secured debts. If you have IRS, you have to pay them. And then whatever's left over from your monthly payment that you pay to the trustee, 
that would go towards the unsecureds. So at the end of five years, whatever the unsecured debt has not been paid is discharged. So for a lot of the consumers that are filing 13, and a lot of them have a lot more unsecured debt, you, you may pay 10 cents, 20 cents on the dollar on the unsecureds, um, and the rest of it gets discharged. So there's advantages as in a seven. However, if you have a higher income or a higher disposable income, and the trustee's gonna have you, you're gonna, for five years, you're paying until you meet 100%. If you, you know, if you only get to 90%, then you only save, you get a discharge on 10%. Mm -hmm. So, um, again, it, 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 you, you get some of the advantages of a seven, particularly depending on your disposable income. Um, a lot of people don't want to, you know, be paying for five years just to pay the unsecureds. Right. So there's 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 different things you can you can do. I understand. So, what are what are the cons of a thirteen versus you know an eleven? Not. I mean, there really aren't any cons. It's just it's it's different class. Different people would fall into eleven than would fall into a seven. There's not really a cross. It's one or the other. There's advantages in the 11, but in the 13, it allows them to save what they want to save, repay who they have to pay, and hopefully not have to pay too much to their unsecured. So a lot of people, well, they want to pay all their unsecured debts, and that's, that's great, yeah. but um, you know, that's five years is a long time that you're paying in. So what is the typical, you know, we talked what the typical Chapter 7 client looks like, the typical kind of Chapter 11 client. What, what's your typical Chapter 13 client look like? I, I don't know if there's a typical, but again, it's, it's, it's somebody that's behind on their house, mm -hmm. their car, furniture, something like that. And actually now with the CARES Act, um, you can do a seven-year plan, I think, for a few more months. So you could stretch it out because a lot of people, what they owe, it, it may seem moderate to us, but it's a lot to them. Mm -hmm. And so uh, five years, they may not be able to pay back everything that they need to. Yeah. So what is, you know, we've walked through kind of what the procedures for 7 and 11 look like. What's a procedure for 18, or for, excuse me, for 13 look like? It's really the same thing. I mean, they're like I say, you 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 fill out the same forms. Mm -hmm. You're looking for the same information. You file a plan. It's different than an 11 plan. It's a 13, and the the district has a standard plan that says how you pay things. Mm -hmm. And so you don't have flexibility. Oh, I'm going to pay this guy this way or this guy this way. You pretty much got to propose to pay him right according to the the standard form plan. So, you. Know, what do you know what do people's lives look like on the other side of bankruptcy i mean you know i think that a lot of there's a stigma you know would you agree with bankruptcy that people especially people who don't really understand it you know really you know the thought of declaring bankruptcy the thought of being quote unquote bankrupt you know um, there's almost like a moral component to that you know what do you tell people who've got that moral you know like i just i I don't, I have a hard time going over the hump of actually declaring bankruptcy, of considering myself a bankrupt person. You know, what do you tell clients that, you know, kind of eases that, that moral tension, that kind of internal fight that, that you probably see on a daily basis? 20 years ago, you used to, you know, there was a lot more of that. Mm -hmm. There's not near as much as now, but there still are people that, that, that really struggle with that aspect. You know, should I do it? Can I do it? 
You've just got to try and explain to them and let them decide and tell them the benefits of what it'll do for them or, you know, if they just keep doing what they're doing two or three years from now, they're going to be in the same place and they're going to have judgments against them and they're going to have all these issues and their credit's never going to get cleared up and uh, that, that it, it, in the long run it will be better for them. And, you know, do the 13, try and pay back as much as you can and uh, you, you just got to deal with it. And, and what do you tell uh, clients, you know, after they get the discharge, either in 7, 11, or 13, you know, what advice do you give them uh, to try to make sure that you're not getting repeat business? Yeah, unfortunately, every now, you know, about every now and then you'll get one, but not very many, fortunately. They just, uh, you know, one of the things in, a, in, in the bankruptcy is they have a financial planning class that people have to take. They're trying to get people to think about what they're doing. I don't, I mean, generally don't see that many people that um, really have a problem. I mean, sometimes you might have somebody that is a spendthrift and, and, runs up but they're not going to have they're not going to have a lot of credit available to them for a while so they're going to have to learn how to deal without credit which means they need to save their cash to take care of their obligations life and is going to kind of life is life is going to change you're not yeah. going to have that you know reach into your pocket and pull that credit card out because when you file bankruptcy there those credit cards are whether you owe them or not they're going to cancel them mm -hmm. Almost every everybody inverted will. So right. they have to change their, their habits and their patterns. And I think most people probably do a pretty good job. Clearly there's some that don't because whether I'm sitting on a 341 meeting, now they do the calls telephonically. It used to be you go downtown in a room and everybody's sat down and they go, you have, one of the questions you have to answer is if you filed bankruptcy in the last eight years. These people will go, the trustee goes, have you filed bankruptcy in the last eight years? No, I think I filed about 12 years ago, and uh, and then the wife will go, well, I think I filed 10 years ago or something. <laughs> Maybe they weren't married or whatever. There are people that do have patterns and have yeah, problems. I mean, There's no doubt about it. Sometimes but, they find each other. Is yeah, <laughs> yeah. The majority of people, though, I think move forward in a positive way. I, I don't have that many people call me. That, that have problems and need to file again. There are some, but not many. I think most people either learn their lesson or they learn how to do a better job with their finances. Well, Dickie, I want to thank you very much for joining us today and kind of you know giving us an overview of personal bankruptcy. I certainly have learned a lot. I'm sure our audience has as well. Uh, so again, thank you for being our first guest on the Bankruptcy Podcast and helping me kind of dip my toe into the bankruptcy waters. You're, I really do appreciate it. You're more than welcome. So this has been Clinton Butler, and I want to thank you all for joining us today, and I want to thank our guest, Dickie Davis. On our next episode, we'll be discussing business bankruptcies, and particularly a hot topic called Subchapter 5s, which Dickie briefly touched on today. I'll be joined by a board-certified business bankruptcy attorney, Alan DeBard, who's been uniquely involved in these types of bankruptcies over the last year. So thank you very much for joining us on the Langley Benack podcast on bankruptcy law in Texas, and we look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you for joining us today for the Langley and Benack podcast. Please subscribe to get the latest updates. If you would like to meet with one of our attorneys, please contact us through our website, www.langleybenack.com, or call us at 210-736-6600.